Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and uh, the witnesses that you have provided in our lives, most especially the witness of your scripture, of who you are, uh, who we are, but what you have done uh, for us. Lord, that you give us a right understanding about the world, about ourselves, but above all, a right understanding of who you are. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're still in Acts chapter 10, where Peter is still at Cornelius, the centurion's home. He's a Gentile God-fearer, and uh, Peter starts preaching in the house. And here's Peter's little sermon. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand, this is verse 34, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, God anointed, uh, Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of the Lord. Okay, so the, the title of this class, Can the Bible Be Trusted? We are witnesses. Can the Bible be trusted? We've already talked about it a little bit. It was a little bit of a fire hose approach about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about uh, today, or the thing I want to talk about today, is the issue of truth and, and honesty and reality in the world in which we live. Uh, because one of the things about Christianity that distinguishes it from every other philosophy uh, and world religion uh, is that it encourages you to tell the truth. It encourages you to tell the truth in a way that is often disarming. Uh, in such a way that uh, even the message of the gospel is uh, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, as St. Paul wrote. Uh, but not just... Uh, uh, what makes it so startling and what makes the gospel so startling is the truth of it, uh, but it's because it's honest about who God is and it's honest about who we are. And until we come to a place where we're honest about who we are as broken and sinful men and women, can we really appreciate and appropriate the gospel message that Christ came to die for sinners. And so Dick Lucas, who was for years the rector at St. Helens Bishop's Gate in London, had a pithy little phrase, and he said, you are more sinful than you could ever possibly imagine, and yet you are more loved than you ever thought possible. So those things, the way that most are mutually exclusive of one another, if you're bad, <laughs> uh, then, then nobody's going to love you. You're not going to be lovable, but in fact you will be unlovable. And Christianity doesn't hold these truths in tension. Uh, but in fact, uh, they meet perfectly in Jesus Christ. Right. <clears throat> 
And so for all of us, you know, for me, I had grown up in a church. Uh, it was a wonderful church. And, and I knew about Jesus and his love and his saving grace. And uh, every vacation Bible school, I dedicated my life to Jesus uh, because you got to meet with the rector. And he always had the best little cookies uh, in his office. And so the numbers went up. The numbers went up, the better the cookies were. Uh, so, uh, so I'd done that, and I grew up in a family that my extended family was very big on making a personal commitment to Jesus, for which I'm very grateful. And, uh, and yet it really wasn't until I, 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 if, I, if I got hit by a train, uh, the Lord would have taken me. And yet it was further down in my life where I finally came to grips with who I was as a sinful human being, where grace was all that more awing, you know, it, it was all that more wonderful, it was uh, all that more confusing uh, how, how God could love me. And then there came a point in uh, my last year of college where the bottom fell out as uh, a former dean uh, was good at saying, uh, everybody's going to have a, a life crisis. Get your do years done early. Just get it done early. Um, and so college is a good time to do that. Uh, but where I was actually having to deal with the notion of what it meant to be sinful, and it actually wasn't my sin necessarily, but somebody very close to me in my life was acting out in such an awful and... Um, audacious way that it made me ask the question, how can somebody who says they're a Christian do such terrible things? And what the Lord did is he put a little mirror up and said, let's look at you, right? I mean, the whole notion when Jesus says, before you point out the speck in your brother's eye, point out, deal with the plank in your own. And Jesus isn't saying you're more sinful than the next person. And he's not even saying anything about judgment. But what he is saying is that, uh, how many of you have ever had a speck in your eye? Even the smallest little particle of dust. How does that feel? The world stops in order to get it out, right? I actually was chopping up some peppers one time and I rubbed my eye and I actually, Lauren walked into the kitchen. I was pouring milk on my eye. I was, I, I didn't, I, and it was so awful. The story behind how those peppers came into our house is a crazy story to begin with. But suffice it to say, uh, when there is something in your eye that is agitating you, there is nothing that will stop you from making it better. And so when Jesus says the plank in your own eye versus the speck in your brother, you both have specks, but the sin in your own life when you have to be pretty self-aware to do a real honest inventory of that, ought to bother you a whole lot more than the sin in somebody else's life. But because of our nature, our sort of default point is always to look at everybody else as a whole lot worse than we are. Right? Uh, even though we might be bad, we still think that there's some sort of reason as to why we're not as bad as people might think we are. We have an excuse. We talked about Ted Haggard who tried to say, you know, I know that I frequent prostitutes and I'm doing meth with them, but that's not really who I am. You know 99% of me. This is just 1% of me. But we know that sin, because it's a condition and not just bad choices or wrong actions, it, it, taints, it taints everything. It, it taints uh, everything uh, that, uh, that we have. And even uh, in our house where we're trying to instill uh, faith in, in our children. We're not one of those who, you know, I grew up, my immediate family thought, um, you, um, we're not going to say anything to you about Christianity because we want you to make that decision for yourself. That was the house I grew up in. And um, as if like 
Christianity with the flu. You know, just they kind of hope you catch it. Um, uh, or chicken pox. Remember chicken pox parties? I remember going over to D. Harrow's house, and he had chicken pox, and then I had chicken pox. So, but... But, you know, parents never do that. Like, my parents never, ever said, you know, school is something we just want you to make a decision about. So if you don't want to do your homework, you know, not a big deal. Like, no, they're like, you're going to do your homework. And, you know, I didn't end up on the couch for those reasons. Uh, but, uh, but so nonetheless, I grew up in sort of this aimless uh, sort of searching area. So with our kids, we're trying to instill in them. And uh, I had come home uh, from a trip. And, of course, the first thing your kids ask when you come home from a trip, would you bring me? Would you bring me? That's entering the child like a kingdom, uh, entering the kingdom of God like a child is like that, an expectation that God is actually going to give you good things. Right? And, and not thinking twice that he wouldn't bless you. Now, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel, but I'm just talking about our disposition toward God as an aside. Well, I'd given Lily, uh, well, name's at the back. So Lily, uh, I'd given her the gift, and, um, and she played with it, and she loved it, and she was so thrilled with it. And then uh, later that afternoon, I found it in the middle of the floor. And I said, you need to pick this up. I'm going to step on it. Uh, it's going to get broken. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, it remained there. And so I picked it up and I put it in the top of a closet. And uh, later on that evening, she said, Daddy, where's the present that you gave me? And I said, Honey, um, you didn't know how to take care of it. And so I've, I've taken it back. And with tears in her eyes, she said, But it was a present. Shoot, you know. <laughs> she gets it better than I do. Um, right, so I mean, God's gratuitous grace that if salvation is a gift from God, uh, it's, it's without condition. God doesn't say, gosh, because we all, this is all of us. You're abusing the gift that, that I've given you. So I'm going to take it, I'm going to put it in the closet until you can show me that you can take care of it and be a good steward of it. And so for all of us, there comes a point in time where... Um, the longer you're a Christian, the more you realize your dependence on the Lord Jesus and the more you realize that you do often take advantage of his grace, that you do take for granted uh, his grace. And that doesn't lead you uh, to sin all the more. No, as St. Paul would say. Uh, but in fact, uh, causes you to throw yourself even more upon the mercy of God. All right? It's sort of like God's light continues to shine in those dark areas of your life to open your eyes to the reality of things. So in our culture that, that we live in, you and me, uh, I find that there are a number of social indicators of self-perception. That is that there are little things that the culture says and does that give us a glimpse into what people think about themselves. And um, a right idea about oneself will give one a right idea about the world around them. It's only half true, but it's true enough. But if you have a right idea about who you are in the world in which you live, it gives you a better perspective on the world. You can manage that. I'm just talking from a practical perspective, not even from Christianity. But if you have a right idea about who you are, your own abilities and limitations, the world is a happier place. The world is, if that's askew, if you don't have a right idea about yourself, you'll be miserable, right? Why? Because more often than not, we think we deserve better than we have, right? Uh, mo' money, mo' problems. Um, I'm back on a 90s rap kick because uh, I was actually looking at all these music things because music, I found, is a real key indicator as to how the culture sees itself. It's a pretty good idea. So uh, basically every song ever written before 1990 had to do with what? Love, 
basically. It had to do with love and, and relationships. And often it was about uh, heartbreak. Uh, it's so funny, and, and in a way that is sort of sweet and innocent. Uh, you know that song, He Won't Love You Like I... That's the song I'm going to dance to every single one of my daughters at their reception after their wedding. <laughs> and um, and it, it actually works. It actually works. It's not sexualized at all, and it's true. Um, so that's, uh, so that's going to be... Um, that's coming their way. Um, uh, so it, it's so everything pretty much talks about love, and it often talks about the broken heart. I mean, Jimmy Reed, you know, what becomes of the broken heart? It's such a sad, uh, sad song. Um, but there's really uh, sometimes it's, it's kind of fluffy. It talks about love. It, it's it's feel good music, uh, and really, um, there were very few exceptions to that. Right in the late '60s and early '70s, that there were a few exceptions. The high point of this was disco. Right, just Everything is good all the time. My kids sing the Lego song. Everything is awesome. Everything is good. and uh, which is a brainwashing tool. Uh, but but it is the sort of idea that movie is actually very insightful. That if you just tell everybody everything is awesome, uh, maybe they'll start to believe it. Maybe they'll start to believe it. And uh, even songs that were a little bit dark or net like Thriller by Michael Jackson, 1983. That's still a fun song, right? It's still a fun song, even though it's about. Uh, dead people and, and werewolves and things like that. Uh, so even, even the darkest things. Uh, and then um, uh, you had some exceptions along the way. I've mentioned a couple, like uh, Cats in the Cradle uh, by Cat Stevens, definite exception. I mean, that's one of those where, I mean, even today when that song comes on the radio, you have a very immediate reaction to it, don't you? I mean, it's one of those that's like a time machine button that, that takes you back and you can't help but think about your own dad uh, or your own mom or your own parents. Uh, and so things are kind of going along well with those few exceptions in music. And then all of a sudden, the band Nirvana comes on the scene. And rather than projecting uh, positivism, positivism, right? And remember, 60s, 70s, 80s, and leading up into the early 90s, like the power of positive thinking with Robert Schuller. I mean, he was all over the TV and Norman Vincent Peale and just sort of, you know, it's Caddyshack. Be the ball. Make Make your future be your future. No, 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 no. You know, sort of positive uh, projection uh, on life, and uh, every cloud has a silver lining. And then Nirvana comes along, and they begin to tap into a real nerve. Uh, they begin to tap into a real uh, reality, and they started to question if they were as special as their parents had told them they were. Right? And of course, in the late 80s and early 90s are when. Uh, Divorces really started to happen in our country in such a way that uh, kids at a younger and younger age were being forced with the harshness of uh, reality. And so Nirvana's song, which we're not going to listen to, so don't worry, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Actually, do you all know where they got that name from, Smells Like Teen Spirit? Kurt Cobain, after, even years after recording it, never knew how it happened. Some, one of his friends spray-painted on his house, Kurt Cobain smells like teen spirit. So we thought, that's really catchy. Uh, but the person doing the spray-painting was actually playing a joke. Uh, teen spirit was a deodorant for girls. And so they were actually saying that 
Kurt Cobain smells like girls deodorant. Uh, and so that's actually the true story uh, behind how the song uh, came to be. Uh, but, but their music was very real, it was very raw, it was very honest, and uh, people started to see things and at least acknowledge things a little more clearly uh, because they were brought to some pretty uh, brutal places. I was going to play some songs for you this morning, but I'm not going to do that in the interest of time except one. I'll just read you the lyrics, which won't be as effective. Uh, but anyway, uh, a band called Everclear, uh, father of mine, uh, clearly singing from a very real place in his own life. Uh, father of mine, tell me where have you been? You know I just closed my eyes, my whole world disappeared. Father of mine, take me back to the day when I was still your golden boy, back before you went away. I remember blue skies, walking the block. I loved it when you held me high. I loved to hear you talk. You would take me to the movie. You would take me to the beach. You would take me to a place inside that's oh so hard to reach. Uh, Father of mine, tell me where did you go? Yeah, you had the whole world inside your hand, but you did not seem to know, Father of mine, tell me what do you see when you look back at your wasted life and you don't see me. I was 10 years old doing all that I could. It wasn't easy for me to be a scared white boy in an all-black neighborhood. Sometimes you would send me a birthday card with a $5 bill. I never understood you then, and I guess I never will. Daddy gave me a name, and then he walked away. Not a song you're going to dance with your daughter to at, at, uh, at a wedding rehearsal, in reception. Um, so, I mean, something clicked. Clearly in culture, where all of a sudden musicians said, we're going to get real honest about a real assessment of life. And this song, uh, the reason why it was so popular, uh, it's catchy, uh, but also it tells the story of a lot of people who sort of lived in suburbia and then mom and dad split up. Uh, I, I spout out this statistic all the time. Number one cause of poverty in the United States Children in single-parent homes, divorce, or children born out of wedlock is actually the number one cause of poverty in the United States. And so all of a sudden, um, a mom and the kids are, are forced to leave that suburban lifestyle and live in low-rent uh, areas. And so a lot of folks, uh, when they heard this song, uh, readily identified with it and how dads related to their children uh, after divorce, especially, uh, for instance, my own life. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young, and uh, I think it was always very difficult, or at least from my perspective, I know it was. Like, how was my dad to relate to me, especially after he got married again and my mom got married again? Right? At some point, it feels like there are just too many chiefs uh, running around, and, and, uh, and you only see them every other weekend. And so uh, the dilemma of... Um, Dad, things were so great, but, but, but now, now what? So there's a lot of vulnerability, a lot of honesty in, in a song uh, like this. And so I think uh, the culture was, was headed. Uh, it understood uh, who it was and what it had become, and people were beginning to be honest. I mean, this is when reality TV started. Right? Remember the, the real world? Uh, yeah, that, that came out. Uh, and um, things like that. Uh, and so, but what ended up happening, and I, I don't listen to a lot, to, a lot of top 40 music uh, these days because uh, it's just bad, but um, uh, it was very funny. Um, well, I can't really tell that story about Lily uh, in public, so I'll tell that one later down the road. Uh, but uh, music today, when I listen to it, encourages you to zone out. Right. So there's an acknowledgement of the reality and the hardness of life, 
Um, but it's not a positivism, positivism being projected, but an intentional blindness, a calling of something that is bad, good, and something that is good, bad. A sort of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, which actually is in the Psalms, but uh, um, an artist in the past couple of years has appropriated that. Um, Lady Gaga's song, uh, Just Dance, It'll Be Okay, uh, when in reality it, it, it won't be. And so in the songs you hear this uh, living out of, gosh, life is really hard, so let's just go crazy. Let's go to the club, let's get really drunk, let's sleep around, let's do all of this stuff. And really this lie that you are the captain of your own destiny. And if you are able to create your own reality, then you're going to be fine. And so even in Taylor Swift songs, which are a little bit uh, less in, in your face, uh, but this sort of, um, I have the power, you can't hurt me. Right? If I just say, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, that gives me a position of power, and I can still maintain my perch without having to deal with the reality uh, of, of the situation. Uh, but we know that that's not true. I think it's very interesting that uh, until the last 10, 15 years, when did you ever hear a romance song that said, well, then forget you? You know, it was always sort of, baby, come back, you know, or, or my life is now over. Now it's like, I didn't love you anyway. It's sort of like, you know, like kids throwing a tantrum. I love you anyway. Uh, and so good riddance uh, to you. And as long as you can say that, you know, you're, you're fine. Uh, you're fine. And so, um, and then even the attempt to try to... Um, appropriate those things in life that people see as a negative and try to turn them into a positive. And so the Megan Trainer song, uh, it's all about that bass, uh, which she's talking about a rear end, right? Uh, uh, Megan Trainer has uh, a larger than normal size rear end. And so she sings this song to sort of say, but you know, this is, this is a good thing. But you know, the fact that she's singing it and making it into an issue means what? She's very self-conscious about it, right? She's actually not uh, okay with it. She's had to write a song uh, in order to talk about it. And I'm not trying to get on Megan Trainer or Taylor Swift. And y'all are like, what is he doing during the week? Um, <laughs> but um, and what does this have to do with Acts 10? So, uh, uh, but what I'm saying is that th it's not them. This is just indicative of the culture in that we live in of creating these false realities. And so when you talk to people who are teenagers or, or, or college age, and you think, now tell me again why you thought it was a good idea to take that inappropriate picture of yourself and send it to friends? Well, I never thought. How could you never think that that was going to happen? When you knew it, that was exact, well, I just, I just never thought. I, I, and so we really are, so when, when kids, when I ask my kids, why did you do that? What do they always say? I don't know. Right? They really don't. Why? Because they don't. Right? They've, they've got, they're in sort of a blindness of, of not actually being able to see a, a thing for what it is. And so what Christianity is about is it's about truth-telling. It's calling something bad, bad, and calling something good, good. Uh, Andrew Archie, um, the rector of St. George and St. Michael in St. Louis, Missouri, during Lent a couple years ago, put up a sign uh, over the church door that said, um, truth-telling in here. 
Uh, and that's the whole idea of Christian, right? We tell the truth. We're, we're truth tellers. We, we say this is, this is the way that things are. And it's not a judgment. It's just the reality of the situation. Now, in 2 Corinthians, St. Paul talks about the minds of the unbelievers being blinded, right? The, being veiled, the gospel being veiled to the mind uh, of, of unbelievers, and I preached a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. But um, Satan is very interesting that the way that he decides to go after people and the way he operates is not through the blinding of the will or the emotions, but through their minds. Through their minds, which, of course, will and emotions come out of. But, uh, so they actually can't see a thing for what it is. And so it's not that they're thinking, I'm singing this and it's not true. They really do believe it. They really do believe it. And so when the Holy Spirit enters into the life of the believer and something like scales fall from their eyes, the veil is lifted, and for the first time in their lives are able to see something as it is. That's why St. Peter says, we are witnesses. I'm not just making this up. I'm not just sort of giving you some helpful hints for living. But this is what we saw. This is what we heard. This is what we experienced. Right? And, and pointing to, to concrete things. Jesus, who died upon a cross. Jesus, who was raised from the dead. We ate with him. We spoke with him. Right? We're not making this stuff up. It really happened. And we're conveying that information to you. Now what are you going to do with it? Because you have to reckon with the truth. Right? You have to reckon with the truth whether the speed limit is 55 miles an hour or Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Truth is truth. You're going to have to reckon and deal with it. Now you can say... Well, I'm, uh, that may be true, uh, but I'm going to live my life in such a way that that truth has no impact on it. I'm going to drive 100 miles an hour. But, of course, there are consequences. There are consequences to that, and you're living in a dream world. You're not living uh, in reality. So the biggest song right now that is out that uh, is sort of the crown jewel in all of this thinking, and I suppose at some point a lot of people in the church thought, oh, well, great, the church is getting, I mean, the world is getting a right idea about itself and thinking that that would logically lead people to Jesus uh, or at least to some sort of uh, truth-telling beyond the truth about themselves. Uh, but what it did is it sent them searching, and in a world screaming for answers, the church was very quiet. And so rather than saying, here is this Jesus, we are witnesses, uh, the church has left the world to its own uh, devices. And so right now, um, uh, there's a song out called Take Me to Church. Um, uh, and actually, the guy, do you know his name is not pronounced Hosier? Uh, it's Hosier, which makes me like him even less. Uh, it sounds Hosier. You know, like I always thought, you know, I think it's so funny when you go to like Continental Bakery or someplace and this person who grew up in Dothan is in front of you and they say, I'd like two croissants. You know, like, I, <laughs> you know, or what's the lady on Food Network who every Italian word she pronounces with an Italian accent? And I'm just like, really? Um, anyway, uh, Hosier. Um, so uh, that's who uh, this guy. Uh, Take me to church, and um, I'm going to read uh, the lyrics to you. Uh, my lover's got humor. She's the giggle at a funeral. Knows everybody's disapproval. I should have worshipped her sooner. If the heavens ever did speak, she's the last true mouthpiece. Every Sunday's getting more bleak. A fresh poison every week. So you hear, he's clearly turned his guns on the church. Uh, we were born sick. You heard them say it. My church offers no absolutes. She tells me, worship in the bedroom. 
The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love it. Command me to be well. Amen, amen. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Good God, let me give you my life. If I'm a pagan of the good times, my lover's the sunlight. To keep the goddess on my side, she demands a sacrifice. Drain the whole sea, get something shiny, something meaty for the main course. That's a fine-looking high horse, what you got in that stable. We have a lot of starving faithful. Take me to church. No master or kings, when the ritual begins, there is no sweeter innocence than our gentle sin. In the madness and soil of that sad earthly scene, only then am I human, only then am I clean. Amen. Now this is a wildly popular song. Uh, And these aren't exactly feel-good lyrics, but what Hosier is talking about is he's very disenchanted with the church, he's Irish, and uh, a lot of what he's upset about in the church is actually rightly placed. Uh, He's upset with the church about what he perceives to be a hypocritical attitude, especially concerning sex, because that's the God he says we ought to worship, Um, Uh, particularly concerned about the hypocrisy involving sex in the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, especially in light of the child abuse uh, scandals and uh, and various uh, other things that he takes issue with politically. Uh, And so he's penned this basically saying, you're all you got. And you better get while the getting's good. And so for me, my church is the person I'm with romantically, and you should just... Go for it. You should just go for it. Because that's really as close to heaven as, as you're going to get. Now, uh, a word uh, about uh, sex uh, in the church. The church has not done a very good job about talking about sex. Because I, I, I was sort of stunned once when I was talking to some young guys in their early 20s. And they were talking about how they couldn't get, wait to get married uh, they had waited till marriage to, to have uh, sex, which is a very good thing. Uh, but for them, that was what they were most excited about in marriage. And I thought, you just wait. <coughs> uh, you just wait, buddy. Um, uh, and, uh, I mean, there's, I mean, sex is wonderful in marriage, uh, and yet it can be really difficult and, uh, and a source of great uh, frustration. And if sex is the end-all, be-all to marriage uh, or any relationship, we're all doomed, right? We're all doomed. And it's hard not to see um, Hosier at least claiming what he's criticizing the church to be, which is basically to take sex and objectify it and use it for self-gratification, that it becomes all about you. But the reason why this, I think, is a popular song and why our culture loves it so much is because Never before, and I rattled off the statistics in my last sermon, have we seen a younger generation uh, so confronted with the stress and pressure of the world and understanding uh, who they are in such a performance-driven culture that um, rather than crying uncle <coughs> excuse me, and looking for freedom in Jesus who frees us from that rat race, Uh, there is, well, what I have to do is I have to begin to mold my world and make it uh, for my own. And so that's why in our culture we think, well, what's fine for them is fine for them, and what's fine for me is fine for me. Whatever floats your boat or finds your lost remote, that's what's going to work. And uh, rather than 
uh, this universal answer, uh, because if we're all in the same boat when it comes to our condition, it means that the only rescue boat that's coming is Jesus Christ. And that is the only name under heaven and on earth uh, where we find health and salvation. And rather than sounding exclusive, because I say that some of you might have been like, that sounds pretty narrow, uh, but let's just say that you, um, you're on the Titanic and you have been thrown into the icy waters of the North Atlantic and on the horizon you see a rescue boat, the only rescue boat in the sea. What do you say as you slip into hypothermia and sink between the waves? I want options, right? No, you don't say, you, you praise God that there is a boat, right? You, you don't care. You see your rescue and, and you, uh, you get rescued, right? You get rescued. You praise God uh, that there is a way, uh, that there is a way, and you're grateful uh, for that way. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't struggle as Christians. I mentioned in the sermon that where Satan clouds the mind of unbelievers because of sin in our own lives as believers, our will and our emotions are still tainted. And often we can hear this lie in our culture of self-justification and we buy into it. Uh, we, we buy into it and it even seems like we're blind uh, to, to the reality. And so I, I think... Uh, one of the things that, that music is doing and why music connects with so many people at such a deep level is it's beginning, especially now with, with music that's out, it, it engages people uh, and helps answer the questions that they're asking. And so our challenge is what are we saying as the church? What does the gospel have to say uh, to people in their lives? Now the thing about sin is this. Original sin is evenly distributed across geography, across time. Uh, so it's not like things are worse today than they ever were. Right? Sin has been at the same level uh, since uh, Eden. It's just manifested itself uh, in different ways. And so uh, for us, on the one hand, I don't want to be the guy who's like over and against it, like footloose, right? No dancing, right? No dancing, Frank. Uh, uh, and so, but... Uh, but what the church does need to do, I think, is engage it, to actually talk about these issues. And to be honest, thankfully here at the Advent, um, uh, we do. Uh, very few churches um, will even engage issues like eating disorders. And yet we do in our youth ministry. Uh, issues of image, issues of, of identity, um, all kinds of taboo issues that people would rather not get into and yet actually affect almost every single one of us. Uh, in our own lives. And why are we able to do that without fear or shame? Uh, because of Jesus Christ, we can be honest about ourselves and know that we're all in the same boat. And so we can, uh, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and throw ourselves upon his mercy and say, um, Lord, uh, by your stripes, I am healed. And claim that as your own in Jesus. And so uh, we are witnesses uh, that we would simply witness to the truth about who we are, but above all about who Jesus is. Questions, comments, concerns? I thought this was really interesting and very educational. My question pertains uh, to mostly the concept of nowadays this being one of the loneliest times for people. Yeah. Because you're so isolated in your office or even at home with a young mom. Yeah. And you have social media, media and music, but then you have only yourself is kind of the voice 
of what you see about this and your perspective right. of this. And I wanted you to speak to maybe just for a second about the importance of community yeah. and people coming together and in faith and how that can the church can play a really good role in that. Yeah, we um, in our in our modern this has actually been centuries in the making, but we um, we have a really bad understanding of friendship. So for those of you before you were married, uh, if you're now married, uh, and, and a word to those who are not married uh, at your station in life, especially when you're in your 20s, I mean, think about the intimacy that you shared with people of the same sex, right? So in college, you lived in a house full of girls, unless, uh, you know, you didn't want to, uh, but, uh, but normally you lived in a large group living situation. Uh, you had a shared life. I mean, you went to them and you talked to them about everything that's going on uh, in your life. And then, uh, and the same with guys, talking to other guys. And this is more of an issue with men. Uh, but then all of a sudden you get married. And men, especially, stop having deep, meaningful friendships with other men. I feel like sometimes I only have the friends my wife gives me. And, um, and, uh, and like you're, you're walking out there and you're like, you just, I just pray that Jen's husband is not a dweeb um, because Lauren likes Jen a lot. Uh, so um, he's not. Uh, so, um, so, uh, so it's, and then even worse, I mean, what about those people who are single, right? Or, or the, or the mom, so there are a couple issues. One is the parallel lives that may, uh, husbands and wife can sometimes live, that you go sit, get so isolated in your own worlds, and husbands and wife have to have a life together, right? They have to have a life together. Uh, but when it comes to um, friendships with everybody, the church especially needs to do a much better job of ministering to people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and beyond, who are single. And I don't mean like siphoning them off and saying, singles over here? Not, you know, I'm not talking about, but actually to have those, men especially, like you still need to maintain those healthy, intimate, appropriate relationships with other men. You need, you need friends. I mean, if for any other reason that, especially when you get married, you need someone to talk to. Right, and not just guys your own age, but uh, when I have premarital couples in, uh, I say to both of them, I say, you need to have a friend who's the same age as you, and you need to have a friend who's married, who's older than you, but at least maybe a little bit older than your parents, so that when you think that your relationship has gone to pot, you can call them up and they can say, <laughs> welcome to marriage, um, when that's actually very normal, um, whatever it is that you're dealing with. But it's an intentionality, and not to be fearful. I mean, one of the things about why are... I mean, one of the great downfalls that our, our, our culture is so sexualized now that if two men, like if Frank and I went out to dinner one Friday evening at 8 o'clock at Chez Fon Fon or at Cafe DuPont, everybody would think what? Gay? Right? I mean, they, they, they just would. And I mean, just let's be honest. They, they would. Because, and so actually what the sexualization, the culture has created this environment where men don't feel like they can, they can actually interact on that level of intimacy. And that's stupid. That's so silly. Um, Henry uh, Nowen, who wrote a lot of wonderful books, The Wounded Healer, amongst others, uh, was a single gay man his whole life, lived a life of celibacy, uh, but really struggled with intimacy, and toward the end of his life, um, uh, went to the door of a, uh, they, a couple of his friends reported this happening. At like two or three in the morning, he would go and knock on their doors, and he would ask if somebody could just hold him. 
And he didn't mean that in a creepy way. He just was so starved for human connection that, that he would go so far as to knock on somebody's door at 3 a.m. and say, can I just be close to you? Can I just be close to you? And, and, and we're all in that boat. I mean, we all need that, that connection, uh, that intimacy, which is not sexual, which is not sexual, but we all, but because it's been confused in our culture, the two of sexuality and that need have been confused, and so it ends up actually both sides lose. Both sides lose. Jim's husband would like to get close to you. <laughs> the not, the not so dweeby. Actually, I want to ask, we talk about truth-telling yep. and advice you might have on how to interface with that people outside of our family and outside of the church. And an example is I have a family member who was once at a dinner party and somebody asked that question, how are you doing? And yeah. honestly answered them, oh, I haven't been going through a breast spot depression. And, uh, they, you know, they didn't go well. They stopped talking to them. And that was sort of his uh, yeah. isolation with the rest of the night. But, you know, it's challenging for us to tell the truth about ourselves in here, but to go and speak to people at work and in the community and reaching out to yeah. Sometimes that doesn't go well, so... Yeah, I think for us it needs to be ready for the worst in, in some case. So when you ask somebody that question or when it comes up, uh, even if it's awkward at the dinner table, uh, to actually follow up with that person and be like, I just want you to know that I, the reason why I didn't say anything is I was so taken aback by it, uh, but I really appreciate your honesty and let's, let's talk about it. And it may be that they don't want to talk about it, they just want someone to listen to them. Um, so I think that 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 that's part of it. I mean, the people that will come into my office and say whatever it is that's on their heart, I mean, um, sometimes I'm shocked, but I'm never surprised. Uh, And so I think that there needs to be a willingness on our part. I mean, when someone comes into my office, uh, they're always familiar with the first ground rule, which is whatever you say stays in the office, but the second rule is whatever I say (laughs) uh, stays in the office. So... um, I think that there needs to be a readiness and a willingness to, en- I mean, again, engage with people at what is sometimes a very uncomfortable, intimate level, which our culture fights mightily against. Uh, Andrew, the, uh, one of the community churches, uh, non-denominationals, had good luck with a, uh, a mentoring program. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, and given the size and the different demographics of the advent. Can you see something like that evolve? That would be great. I mean, that, that sort of happens organically around here in a lot of ways. I'll, I'll say, hey, you need to go hang out with so-and-so. I tried to do something like that in my last parish where I actually tried to create a ministry and because I thought we have all of these retired Marine Corps officers and other general officers in the congregation and former CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And... Um, uh, and these young marine officers and young professionals, what a great way to sort of, and I was, there was, all the young guys stepped forward and said, I want to be a part of this. But then I'd take these older guys out to, uh, to lunch, and one guy uh, has, was awarded uh, uh, multiple bronze stars and a silver star for, um, and was, and for carrying, basically a helicopter caught on fire, and he sort of a Forrest Gump thing and like carried all these violence. And I was talking to him and he's a retired Marine Corps general. And, he, and I said, well, how would you feel about mentoring one of these young Marine Corps? He was like, no, 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 no. I was like, let me get this right. You're fine charging into the bush in Vietnam and rescuing bodies from a burning helicopter. He's like, 
Yes. <laughs> but that was really, and, and, and the older guys were really intimidated. Uh, and part of it was they didn't feel like they had anything to offer, uh, which that's not the point. The point is just, so yeah, if, if anybody said, hey, I, I'd love to do that, I'd, I'd put them to work. All right, truth tellers. All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.